Midnight Mass listeners. It's me, your old ghoul friend, Peaches Christ. And you are tuning in for another exciting episode of this Midnight Mass podcast we like to do. But before we can go any further... I have to introduce my fantastic co-host who just returned from Iowa, of all places, with me. We were there together. Find out why in just a moment. Without further ado, it's Michael Verratti! Hi, Peaches. Yes, freshly returned from the freezing cold cornfields of Iowa for a great cause, honestly. You and I were there to shoot a movie. That's right. Um, A movie called Ghost Puncher. That is a short film made by an old friend and creative collaborator of mine, Cool Z, who's a hip-hop musician, also a filmmaker, obviously, and he is making this short film called Ghost Puncher. I believe the plan is to to hopefully someday turn it into a feature film project. I had so much fun there, I must tell you. And, uh, you know, you and I have done little things on stage together, but I think it's the first time we've really gotten a chance to act together. And it was a, a blast. I had a great time uh, sharing scene time with you and uh, exploring the uh, the cool town of Fairfield, Iowa, which, yeah. you know, we had quite some adventures. I have to say, though, I'm, I'm, I might have to correct you because you did use the word act. And, um, well, yes, it's true. I was acting because I played a psychic and I don't actually have psychic powers. Well, you're playing a pervert. So were you acting, actually? Well, I had been studying you for a while and I just put it into my performance. <laughs> oh, my God. God got me. I have fucking bronchitis cough. I think I have like some sort of cough, residual cold because of uh, Iowa, quite frankly. And then the four flights we had to take to get there and get home. It's true. I was stuck in Dallas for a bit. Uh, I don't know if I told you that. Um, uh, When I got flown into Dallas as part of my layover, they did that thing where we were sitting on the plane and the pilot was like, oh, attention, uh, passengers, we are doing some maintenance and we might be here a while. And I... A hundred pages of the great book that I was reading later, we finally took off. Wow, okay. And and you had already finished Funhouse. I know that you read Funhouse on your way to Iowa, so... You know what was interesting, uh, Michael, about um, Iowa, and we, we, we will, we I promise ghouls uh, that we will get to the movie this week, but... Um, this is film and cult film related. We were actually picked up at the airport by this wonderful woman named Patricia, who is, uh, I guess, probably, I would guess, in her 80s, wouldn't you say, Michael? Like, she was our driver. She was definitely a much, much older woman, sweet as could be. And Michael and I engaged her in conversation. And what we found out is that Fairfield, Iowa, is really the mecca for TM, which is Transcendental Meditation. Now, as soon as she started talking about it, I realized, as someone who actually has done TM and has a mantra and uh, learned TM years back, that I had heard of Fairfield before. And this is like the home of the David Lynch Institute. And, you know, David Lynch has done a lot um, and built a school. And the whole TM universe is kind of centered around this little town of Fairfield. So that was really interesting to find out that's actually where we were. Yeah, I loved that because, you know, it gave an extra layer of intrigue for me because you don't think in the middle of the country, the Great Plains, the breadbasket, if you will, that you would encounter this counterculture. But as Patricia told us, a good percentage of the people of Fairfield, Iowa, are there 
because they study TM. So uh, in a way, it was sort of a cult within a cult within a cult yeah. uh, nesting egg. And I love that because, of course, where else would we find ourselves? Exactly. And, I, and, it, and it made sense to me that like, oh, of course, that's where Cool Z would end up if he was going to end up in Iowa. Because I met Cool Z working, you know, at the Bridge Movie Theater and Cool Z created my first ever single called Idol Worship. You know, he was the producer and um, I wrote the lyrics and he created all the music and he recorded me. And, it, you know, I, I've, I've we've stayed friends ever since. But um, when he said he was moving to Iowa, I was kind of like, what? What? Why? What? I, I didn't really get it. But then being there and seeing how charming it was and how zen everyone was, it was, it was definitely a lovely place. Now, I do want to share this one little story about Patricia because I do think our listeners will enjoy it. But when we got off the plane, Michael and I took different flights and we landed in Iowa and we met the driver, uh, one driver who said that we were going to be driven by this other woman, Patricia. And then we met Patricia and Patricia poured us into her car and said, "Okay, we're heading to Fairfield. That's a two hour drive from Des Moines. Do you want anything in Des Moines? Because there's not going to be anything open. And now I knew we were going to have dinner waiting for us because they had already taken our order. Uh, So I wasn't worried about food, but I did want some coffee because I was fucking starving. Like I didn't eat on the flights and I was hungry. And I thought, okay, if I have a coffee, then I'll be fine for a couple hours. So I said to Patricia, if we could just stop for coffee, that'd be great. Now, mind you, it's 5 o'clock p.m. I get it. Kind of late for some people to have coffee. But you would have thought I asked her. I don't know, for like a surf and turf buffet or something. She was like, coffee? Coffee? You know, and and I'm like, yeah, just some coffee, you know. And she was really baffled by it. So uh, I do want to interject that when Peaches asked Patricia if we could get coffee, while Patricia is really rolling over this request in her brain, saying (laughs) coffee as if Peaches has asked for something impossible. We were at a stoplight staring at a food mart gas station, and I'm thinking to myself, uh, what about right there? But of course, Patricia had other plans. Yes, so, so, and, and I actually was thinking the same thing. Like, I was so baffled by her confusion that I kept thinking... I wonder if she thinks, you know, uh, because I'm a city slicker, I need fancy coffee. I really don't need fancy coffee. So she drives out onto the road and goes, oh, I know. I know what we'll do. And she makes a turn into a giant parking lot where there's two businesses. One is a hotel, like a Hampton Inn style ho- hotel, and the other's like a Ruth's Chris style uh, steakhouse. So kind of fancy steak restaurant and chain hotel. And she pulls up to the front door of the hotel and she says to me, and Michael's not really paying attention. He's on his phone, you know, doing business or something. And she says to me, okay, just go in there, act like you're staying there and they have really good coffee here. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm actually going into this hotel lobby to steal coffee. Without questioning it because I liked Patricia so much, I said, okay, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. And uh, I got out of the car because actually we were getting three coffees because everyone decided they were wanted coffee. Mike wanted coffee, Patricia wanted coffee, and I wanted coffee. So I'm going into this hotel to walk by the front desk clerk, get three coffees, <laughs> and then walk out. Um, my plans were thwarted because uh, I got in there and they had already put the coffee away. But I do kind of love that but that was Patricia's best idea for, you know, getting coffee. Right. Now, meanwhile in the car, Peaches is absolutely correct. I was answering emails and not paying attention. So I did not hear any of this exchange where P- Patricia basically suggested we go in and heist coffee. And I was just like, I'll stay in the car because I, for some reason, thought the whole time Peaches was just going to go get coffee from this steakhouse that was there. Which is weird, too. Yeah. I'm sitting there and... Patricia kind of like tapping her fingers on the steering wheel as if we're in Reservoir Dogs or some shit waiting for the getaway decides, 
I'm going in. And Patricia just gets out of the car and leaves her car door wide open and just walks into the hotel. And I'm like staring at this open door in the like, you know, the winter months of Iowa. And I was like, oh, okay. So I got out, closed Patricia's door, got back in the car, went back to texting on the phone. And like three minutes later, Patricia gets back in the car and says, coffee's not happening. And I'm like, what the hell has happened? What's going on? (laughs) (laughs) I did go to the steakhouse and I did get coffee there, but it was quite the welcome to Iowa. And, um, you know, driving from uh, Des Moines to Fairfield, one could not help but think of the small towns of Iowa, specifically a town where, you know, the children of the corn would have lived. And um, I think the mere suggestion of children is a wonderful segue to introduce the movie that we're going to discuss this week, now that we've burdened you with our Iowa stories. Well, I mean, I truly believe that in addition to strange children, this story bears great relevance to the movie this week, because in addition to unusual circumstances and eccentric older women, which all have to do with this episode. This week of airing is also Thanksgiving, which is a time you spend with your family. And this week's episode is all about the bonds of family, and it's a movie that you can show your family if you want to watch a movie with your family or maybe scare them away. That's right. We're watching 1974's questionable tale of infant care, The Baby. Get this, Michael. I didn't even remember this until just now. You're going to think I'm totally full of shit. I'm going to tell you something that's just going to blow your mind. And maybe that's why this all happened the way it did. Years ago, maybe like six, seven years ago, a group of us rented a house in Bolinas, which is this this um, West Coast, Northern California, like really charming shanty town about 90 minutes, two hours from San Francisco, right right on the, the, the sea. And the people of Bolinas actually don't want visitors. Like, they, they're kind of anti-tourists. But that's beside the point. There was a group of us. We rented a house. My mother, uh, my sister was there. Heclina was there. Martini, but Corky, Lady Bear. Like, a whole big group of us, right? And we had Thanksgiving at this house. We made a big dinner, and we stayed there for the weekend. And the movie that we watched on Thanksgiving night and that big trip that I got to pick out was The Baby. Your poor mother. Um, (laughs) I don't think she stayed up for it. I think she watched maybe like 20 or 30 minutes and then said, I'm going to bed. There is an episode of the show early on. I can't remember which one, I must confess, where uh, I was doing the usual intro thing where I'm like, I'm excited to talk about this movie, Peaches. And you said, I can't wait for the week where you're not excited to talk about the movie. Well, that's not true here because I am excited to talk about this movie. But what's particularly unique about The Baby is because of its so many unique attributes. It's a movie that I watch in sort of abject horror, and I have yet to decide whether I actually like it or just appreciate it for the sheer maelstrom of madness that it is. Like, I, I, I engage with it in a way that I would maybe a Gaspar Noe film or, or some of Takashi Miike's work where I'm like, yeah, this is the work of a deranged mind, and I love that it exists, but do I like that it exists? Question mark. I think it's good that you and I um, don't always agree on whether or not we like something, and I think that's kind of what makes being a, a fan of movies fun. Because if we all if we all had the same reaction to every movie, that'd be kind of weird, right? So. I really like the baby. I um, definitely earnestly like it. Now now I can actually think about the fact that I've actually watched it a number of times. 
Um, as I mentioned to you, and I'll mention later in one of our interviews, I showed this movie to Alaska Thunderfuck at a party. I, definitely, it's one of those movies I I like sharing with people, kind of like Happiness, you know, Todd Solondz's film. Like, there, there are these films where I enjoy the experience of experiencing it through someone else's virgin viewing, if that makes sense, you know, sharing something with a group of people for the first time. And The Baby is the perfect movie for you all at home to screen for your families this holiday weekend. It's a film about family and about, you know, rearing a child. And uh, I guess we are going to spoil a lot on this episode. So if you haven't seen the film, you should maybe watch it and then come back and and listen or just be aware that we're going to give you some spoilers. I, as you know, love subversive cinema. So I like cinema that challenges me. I like cinema that is a little uncomfortable. And so it was never a question when this came up that uh, I wouldn't want to talk about it. Because I do, I think enjoy this movie in the in the spirit that it's offered in. It's just one of those where I think it's a fascinating film and and as you'll hear us discuss with both of our guests, the gist of the movie is this sort of quirky family is keeping an adult baby. That seems like a simple logline until you start unpacking maybe the ableist problems and the deranged issues that that like presents as as other people enter their world. I consider it like a cinematic train wreck in the way that you can't look away from it. Like, and I enjoyed showing this to my boyfriend in while I was watching it in, in preparation for the episode, rewatching it rather. He had never seen it. And every few seconds, he was gasping at something new. Like, they're not gonna do, oh my God, no. What? Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was just like, it's extremely problematic. And yeah, you know. but it also, his reaction was feeding me. That was like all I needed. I was like cackling madly. Like, it was feeding you just like the babysitter fed, fed baby. Poor baby. <laughs> a topic we'll discuss with both of yeah. our interview subjects, which, without further delay, I'm so excited about our first guest. This is someone that I have known from the indie film scene for years and years and years. Uh, they are a a queer, you know, auteur, has been really hitting the mean streets of cinema for queer causes long, long before the current crop of filmmakers were out there. I've had good opportunity to work with this person. I think they're a brilliant filmmaker and someone that I happen to know is a huge, huge fan of the baby, uh, the iconic Alan Kelly. And Alan's going to dig into this delicious dish with us right now. Well, the great thing about cult films, listeners, is you can't have a cult film without the cult members who make it up. And when we decided to do The Baby, I knew that we absolutely had to get our next guest. An intensely prolific artist and the toast of the indie horror scene, he's the filmmaker behind such diabolical dishes as I'll Bury You Tomorrow, The Bloodshed, and Gallery of Fear. I personally got to work with this amazing artist on a handful of projects, including the anthology horror film Tales of Poe, where you can see him cause some gore and seduce one of the village people? A writer, producer, director, editor, actor, fashionista, and true bon vivant of blood, please welcome Alan Roe Kelly. Hi, Alan. Thank you very much. That was a nice, that, that was a nice opening. I'll take it. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> 
Well, well, I mean, it's all very, I mean, very well deserved. I, I think you know, Ellen, that both Michael and I are huge, huge fans of yours. And, and vice versa. Most definitely. I feel like there's been this sort of like um, recent wave of queer horror celebration. And I, I always look around and I go, yeah, but there were some of us who've been doing this for a long time. Over and 20 you know, years now. I can't believe it. You know, <laughs> and, yeah. and we've, we, you and I have known each other for quite a long time, too. That, and of course, I met Michael through you. Yeah. When you came to New York with All About Evil. Yes. Which was yes. originally going to be the bloodshed. Yes. A lot of people don't know that. <laughs> I mean, uh, just, just a real uh, quick aside, and we'll get into our featured film, but uh, Alan Roe Kelly was making a movie called The Bloodshed, or had made it, actually, when I announced that All, All About Evil was going to be called The Bloodshed and w put it up on IMDb. And what I loved about our our, um, our meeting was I was already a fan of yours, and you you reached out to me and introduced yourself, and I'm like, yeah, I, I think I've I know who you are. And it was just a lovely interaction because a lot of people in the film business can be very territorial and very crazy. I, I'll be honest with you, because I had known about you. So I was terrified to write you. Oh, thinking, no. oh my God, it's like, he's doing something. He's got a much bigger right. cast than I do. You know, it's kind of like, I, I was like, fuck. And we're almost done. And I had to like, yeah. just approach you and go, oh, I wonder if we could like, Talk about that. <laughs> you were you were so gracious and so cool about it. And, it, and all about what? evil's perfect title. It led to the right title. Your movie needed to be The Bloodshed, and I needed to come up with um, All About Evil. And a lot of people don't know that before The Bloodshed, the movie was called Grindhouse. And when, um, <sighs> when right. and it, it was based on a short film that I made called Grindhouse, and when Darren Stein um, reached out to Rose McGowan to b possibly be in our movie, um, Rose said, oh my God, you're not going to believe this, but I'm already signed on to do a movie called Grindhouse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. It's oh, wow. Like, <laughs> yeah, so, so the title, you know, it's... It, it, it went through different iterations. But anyway, long story short, Alan Roe Kelly, you're one of my favorite people, and I'm so glad you're here today. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks, guys. Well, you know what's really great about this discussion of Grindhouse and underground yeah. and queer cinema and regional filmmaking and the indie scene that we all come from that has has taken on a different shape and form now with the advent of the internet and things. But, you know, when we all started we kind of existed in a world of movies that were the movies outside of the mainstream. And they come from this proud tradition of the, the 42nd Street Theater and sort of the B pictures. And the movies with the grit and the messages that you couldn't see uh, anywhere else. And that tradition comes from movies like The Baby. And oh, yeah. so when we are looking at this movie and talking about this movie, of course, Alan, we have to start at the beginning. When did you first see this this messed up film and what what drew you to it? Uh, well, first of all, I'm a huge fan of Ruth Romans. I always had been. I always thought she was such a wonderful sort of femme fatale character in the 50s, really smoky and dark and kind of edgy. I loved what she did. But then, of course, as she had, you know, as most of the actresses at that day had started to mature, the only thing that was coming open to them were just... Uh, you know, grindhouse movies, horror movies, slasher movies. And um, so I think with her, she did about three or four of them, the baby included, which I think in her book she called just a piece of crap. <laughs> <laughs> in that tone. But I just followed her into this, and I think I saw this in the early 90s on VHS, and it mm. shocked me. I was just like, 
something I just never heard about. It was one of those movies I didn't know what it was, you know, but just saw that um, picture in the VHS stores, you know, in, in Blockbuster with the crib and the, the foot over. And that's when I first saw it. I've been addicted to it ever since. For me, I have a similar um, exposure to it, but it came later and definitely was something where someone like us said to me, like, have you seen the baby? You should see the baby. And kind of didn't warn me or tell me anything about it, which is actually, I think, the <laughs> best way to go into it. And um, and so I, I saw it, uh, you know, I probably on DVD, I'm guessing, because it was a little later than the 90s. But I love remembering that, this movie, when, when folks see it, remember, this movie was rated PG. I know. Yeah. I know. I, it's not, that's what's so wild about it. It's probably because maybe, like, the blood was, it wasn't really a blood feast. Right. But in the other hand, it, I mean, so 70s where it just touches every subject matter possible and puts, like, a really nice dark edge to it and just makes it all wrong for all the right reasons. We know now that the baby could never be made today because of all of the sort of unapologetic ways it explores things that are really, you know, uh, taboo and controversial and maybe does it in a very insensitive way, you know. And and so I guess let's just dive in, right? Because I think to, to really discuss the baby, we have to start with the obvious, which is the baby, right? Like, so for those of you who haven't seen it, you need to see it, but it, it, it you know, just because I know there are some of you who will listen to this podcast and not have seen the movie. This is a film about uh, an adult. I think he's, what, like 30 years old or something? And, yeah, he's definitely yeah. in his mid-20s, right? It's basically, yeah. it's a social worker yeah. who basically gets a new listing and she has to go check on this family, this Wadsworth family. Yeah. And it ends up being the mother, played by Ruth Roman, and her two zany daughters, uh, which is what, Susan Zener and Marianna Hill? Yeah, I think. Yes, you're right. You're and, totally and, right. Um, and uh, and oh, and baby, which is a grown man in a diaper and a playpen. Yeah, <laughs> and that's kind of it. it just yeah. kind of takes off from there. Yes, very interesting. What's particularly eerie about Baby too, the character of Baby, is uh, throughout the whole movie, this actor who truly is committed to this role, yes, stays on all fours. He makes baby expressions. And I guess when they first made the movie, he also provided all the baby noises. But someone in post thought to make it even stranger, they used ADR of an actual baby, which makes the film even weirder, as it if does. it could get any stranger. You know? Because for some reason, it's synced up so perfectly to his mouth. It just really sounds like it's coming out of him. And in the film, in, in the baby film, he's... His, he goes under the name David Manzi, but uh-huh. his real name is David Mooney. And oh, he's wow. done a lot of things, but I think he wanted to separate himself <laughs> from the role and just kind of make it disappear, which of which course is, it, it hasn't. But it's actually kind of too bad in a way because I have to say, as much as I love Ruth Roman and I love her in this movie, we got to talk about her voice in a moment. But, um, you know, it's just, she she's just so delicious. But as far as a really good performance goes, like he... He's oh, one of yeah. those, it's one of those performances like Dustin Hoffman doing Rain Man or- No, it, it's very disturbing. It's it's yeah. really disturbing to watch it's because good. he's really got the whole infantilism down pat. Yeah. It, it's 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 awesome. When I first saw it, remember, you know the girl that plays the um the babysitter? Yes. When I first oh, yeah. saw the movie back in the 90s, I thought it was Adrian King. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> 
And then I realized later on that it wasn't Adrian I never mentioned that to her, but we need to mention that because it, she does. She does. They have the same haircut, and I it's totally, the Alice. It's the Alice it's, haircut. It's yeah, the Alice haircut, and, and that scene. So let, we could talk about that scene. That scene is oh, yeah. really, I think, the moment early on enough in the film where you go, oh shit, there are no taboos here because he's done an authentic enough job portraying the character like without a wink to the audience where you're really watching it going, whoa, this is an adult, this is a baby, this is a real baby. And that scene where the babysitter, spoiler alert, breastfeeds the baby and Ruth Roman and the daughters walk in and catch, and I forget what Ruth Roman's line is, but it's like Oh my gosh, she goes, what was it? She's like, we were doing anything we were doing nothing yeah. she goes nothing you got your goddamn tit in his mouth and you say nothing yeah and then she yes. pulls out yes. this belt and she goes you want kicks i'll give you kicks and you know she you can tell she had just smoked her last winston when she had like gotten into this scene because her voice is re- and her wig was really big oh the wigs her the hair, hair keeps altering in different scenes which is great it just keeps changing shape and not yes. just her, because when they throw the party later, the uh, yeah. one who plays Jermaine, the older daughter, <laughs> yes, her wig in that scene is its own movie. Like, whatever yeah. is going on there. Yeah. That was a real style back then when you crimped your hair. Right. In, like, yeah. the early 70s, they actually had irons that would crimp it and give it that sort of, you know, wave. So that was, like, really kind of popular for a minute. It's like a tower. It's like yes. a tower of yes. hair. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> the hair alone deserves its own episode. And the swearing, I think, too. Oh, I think swearing. I just think Ruth Roman's dirty mouth through this is just great. You know, <laughs> everything's, everything's horseshit. Or, you, know, you damn bitch. She's just always going after somebody. But her mouth is great. We talk about Ruth Roman, and you brought up, Alan, specifically this era where Hollywood actresses of a certain time were now kind of only getting these horror parts. The Unfortunately, post, yeah. Yeah, the post-Baby Jane effect, if you will. Mm, yeah, and, absolutely. And one of the conversations that Peaches and I have had uh, throughout this discussion series is is not just exploitation, which of course is not a phrase I particularly love, but we've I'm also... I'm not crazy. I've never been crazy about it either, to be honest with you. It was it, funny for a moment, then you realize, eh. It's me. I, you know, because yeah. I'm also, I'm that age. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's, but, it's kind of, you know, people have seen me in current films and say, oh, it's a return to exploitation," And oh, I'm no. like, oh, God. hey, thanks. That was awesome. <laughs> but we've also been talking about evil child movies recently, and what's really interesting about The Baby is it's sort of the cross-section of both. I mean, The Baby's not evil, yeah. but there is this kind of malevolence to the whole raising of the baby that I don't know. But also the purpose of um of the social worker. Yeah. Mm. You know, of Anjanette Comer's character. It's just that that's like you don't realize how sick that really is too. You know, until the end it's like really fighting for, for a baby, but for uh, for completely different reasons. Yeah. And kind of the same too. All of the adults are problematic in the film, yes. including yeah, including yes. including the person you think is sort of the the relatable protagonist. And and so by the end it's really only the baby that's decent uh, yeah. as far as, you know, motives go. And one of the things you find out, like, as the movie gets sicker and weirder, and definitely I think one of the reasons we like it so much is because the tone is more melodrama than horror or exploitation, right? So it's like it's like weird. It's- it looks like a made-for-TV movie. Yes, It looks yes. like a movie of the week, and then all of a sudden it becomes yeah. a psychological nut thing, and then it becomes yeah. a horror movie at the end. It becomes yes. like three different things. So it's it's 
And it, so it's it's a strange film. And it's got a little Baby Jane in it because, you know, you have these family members who you figure out, or I think we're led to believe, the baby's the way the baby is because the sisters and the mother have, have like, cattle prodded. Oh, they hate men. They they despise men more than anything, you know? They just, they just want to destroy every man they come in contact with. Yeah. You know, you know she's got a couple dead husbands around somewhere with insurance policies you know you just know it well there's that great sequence where they're trying to explain the psychology of baby where we as the audience are still left uncertain is this uh an actual situation or has this man been made this way by these women and uh they they have that exchange of dialogue where well ever since her husband walked out when baby was born she's been punishing men ever since and it's like what is this movie actually about? And can we ever everything. figure it out? <laughs> it's about everything and nothing. It's, it's, it's all over the place. It is about everything and nothing. That's yeah. actually, that's such a great way to sum it up because I was thinking about the movie and we were going to talk about it. And then I was like, what the fuck is there to say about the baby? I mean, it is just so bizarre and you watch it. And by the end of it, you're like, that was amazing. But oh, you're yeah. not, you're not really sure why. It's like incest. It's really pedophilia yeah. in a sense. Yeah. It's it's a lot of pedophilia, and then, I mean, it just and then of course just a lot of S and M type of behavior, just real yeah. sadomasochistic behavior, and it's it's crazy. Rewatching it, it was kind of like okay, I, I see all this ableism that I didn't yeah. understand the first time I watched it because as a society or as a, you know a person who cares about educating myself, it's like oh, I'm better able to see that this movie's incredibly problematic and this is really ableist and awful and you know it, you know it's kind of making light of serious mental health. So there's that. Then there's like the stuff at the end, like where they basically Bill Cosby her, you know, like things that like I forgot, like they totally drug her oh, at the yeah. end, you know, with Just the cocktail. Drag her in the basement. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like it's really, during this really... psychedelic drug party. It's really funny. Oh my god! And the party—it's just so amazing. And the momos. That's what I wanted to bring up. The caftan budget on this film was probably more than any of the actors got paid. As soon as she opens the door in that first scene in that sort of red tablecloth plaid getup with like sort of the boots, it's crazy. And you know, it's probably all her own wardrobe because they probably had no budget, you know? And then she's rocking the denim through a lot of the movies. I was going to say, I actually really love... The, the Johnny guitar poses, yes. you know, like yes. she comes out of the porch and has the denim Strutting and puts there her, and hand, her foot's yes. off and, you know, she's like totally at that stance and just kind of smirking and, you yeah. know, and, and her eye is kind of twitching a little bit. If yes. you ever noticed that one scene that like her lash got stuck or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but she kept going with it. So I guess these are all the reasons we love the baby. Oh, Yeah. And with the Kaftan Mumu situation, she's not the only one though, because at the end oh, when no. it turns into like full on like Bay of Blood and the like mother in law of our caseworker, oh god, she's yes. just like wearing that like weird like Mooney that like everybody yeah, had yeah, that weird yeah. zip up velour thing every <laughs> yeah. every mother wore back then. Yeah, it's true. J C Penny. This is one of those movies where you go, okay, what were they thinking, and who was this for? And so like you look at something like Baby Jane, and to bring up that term exploitation, you know, you see films like Straight Jacket, Lady in a Cage, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, they're pretty, it's pretty obvious what they were trying to do. I think with the baby, I just don't think it knew where it was going from the beginning yeah. to end, you know? Yeah. Obviously, maybe they might have shot it in sequence because it opens up very, it just goes in a lot of different directions. Suddenly, yeah. and then it just gets a little batshit. 
you know? Yeah. yeah. So I, I don't know. It's I, I, Maybe they thought it was too mild and said, oh, we got to amp it up, or maybe we're going too far, or who knows? The thing where I get stuck is not just the film itself, but sort of the circumstances of its production that make me question why it exists. Because if at this certain point in the 70s, if this had been made by Herschel Gordon Lewis or Andy Milligan or uh, <laughs> or somebody from sort of the 42nd Street or Grindhouse era, sure. I, would ca- I would have said it's sort of a causation of avant-garde, like this thing where they already are making movies that are billed as shocking. And so it hits that point where like, how right. much farther can we push the envelope? But the filmmaker who made this, Ted Post, in this exact same year, made the sequel to Dirty Harry, the year before made the sequel to Planet of the Apes. He was sort of just like a contract director who was a journeyman in Hollywood. He was like a straight-laced dude. He had not really made this kind of movie. So we're not even looking at like a push-the-buttons auteur here. It's just like your uncle who just happened to make this fucking weird movie. And I think that's what it was for him. Maybe because of that, that's why we get this sort of movie that we're talking about all these years later, because you have a competent director who knows how to make a movie, and then you've got a batshit script, and then you throw, like, Ruth Roman in, and, you know, you have this really amazing sort of spectacle of a performance, and all the taboos. I was looking up, you know, I wanted to see if there was anything interesting on the Wikipedia page. And, yeah, you know, or if, t- if there were scenes out. shot that they decided not to put in it or anything like that, but I don't think there is. There's not a lot out there, yeah. but one thing I did find really kind of pretty fabulous is, is that it's worth noting that... Um, the film on Rotten Tomatoes has a 93% approval rating. Now, that's only based on 15 reviews, but still, right. you know, re- repeatedly, whether it's TV Guide or whoever's reviewed it, you know, people actually credit the performances as being really good and that the film is competently directed. So there is this sort of like interesting part of the film that's like you're watching it, and part of the reason we're so fascinated by it is because it's not just some campy like you know exploitation film you were talking about production before too like even like poor Anjanette Comer who plays Ann Gentry the social worker you could tell they didn't have a makeup artist on set because half the movie she's got this big fever blister on her lip yes that they couldn't cover it up you know and any film would have always had that you know that peaches we would have that cleaned right up even in the 70s like yeah the 70s which i like about the 70s right like like if some if an actor had like a little pimple or something they would let it they would let it look natural so i think yeah this was just the thing they just i think everyone just came kind of like hair makeup ready and just went for it but I will say that that cold sore is very distracting. It is. The reality is, is thanks to Arrow's 4K restoration of the film, it did her no <laughs> favors. Let's oh. be like, yeah. oh, poor girl. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you can't help but sit there and feel terrible for her because most of us have had cold sores and we know how fucking horrible you feel. You oh, know, yeah. they're disgusting to look at. And, you know, I, I almost like wonder, like, how did they not, like, just deal with that. Like, how could you not help that poor woman? Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested in sort of the wider scope because when you look at a movie like this that has stood the test of time, I think it has to do more than with just the shock value because there is an inherent draw to the artistry of the subversive. It's why Pasolini's Solo is a movie we're still talking about. It's why mm-hmm. um, some of these filmmakers like Gaspar Noe or Takashi Miike in the more modern sense 
are, are people that we hold neck and neck with the auteurs. And I'm, I'm wondering, what is it specifically about this movie? When we know so many films of that era attempted to be shocking and we're not talking about, especially because when looking at the beats of this movie, how many of them are not just problematic by today's standards, but were by then standards. Oh, complete t- taboo. But I just think that's it, shock value. Yeah. I really think that's exactly what it is. I mean, we've made films for shock value. No. You know? And and tried to hit on places that just, like, you shouldn't go to. You know? And I'll still do that. <laughs> you know? I, you, gotta, you gotta laugh. You gotta laugh at stuff, you know? I mean, I, I remember when I first met Peaches and then you, Michael, I think we were even talking about this film years ago. Yeah. Like, how that we should have done a remake. And I was gonna start compiling, like, an idea of the baby mixed in with like people under the stairs or something oh, like that. That would be so You know, good. and just kind of put something really gruesome together and stuff. Of course, it, you know, in your mind. Of course. Didn't come didn't come to fruition yet, but I do think that if um there is going to be a remake of the baby, I mean, I will I will sign and lead the petition to have Ellen Roe Kelly play the Ruth Roman character. Thank it, you. It absolutely must happen. I will get the right wigs yeah, too I mean, and I'll I'll smoke too. <laughs> I'll smoke a lot. I think it could just be great, you know. It could I mean, be fun. It yeah, could be fun. A lot Definitely. of fun. But you'd have to be the next door neighbors. Oh, I would. Well, absolutely. Completely. Yeah. <laughs> Completely. Um, I just that wild uh, psychedelic party. First off, who are all of those people that are just going to her house that are just okay with this weird situation? And why is Mike? Why is Michael Pataki one of them? That's, that's well, I think it's so funny because it's kind of like they're welfare recipients having these like, huge rave parties at their place. And they all have like disco lighting, which is hysterical too. Like it suddenly goes from like a, a normal family home to this like psychedelic party house. Yeah, yeah, and you go and you're wondering like, okay, they haven't introduced the, them as as being very social people or part of some yeah. sort of underground society. I mean, so exactly. In my it's, mind, it seems... yeah, I was kind of going like, oh, is this some sort of Rosemary's Baby twist where you find out that there's this bigger cult? But no, that's not what's going on. This is just like some random party for and his all for cool baby's with birthday. Baby having yeah. a birthday party. With right. all there for like, baby. Sister, like, um, sexually, like, you know, stuffing icing in his mouth and him licking her finger. And you're like, this is so weird. And and there's that, like, sort of weird cannibal guy who, um, you know, talks about how he... That's right. Um, he, he loves her skin and he's, he's sort oh, of fetishizing right. his, her skin. Just really weird, like, things that don't really... You know, they don't play out. Like, a normal movie would introduce a cannibal and then it would go someplace. I always wonder what those crazy like psychedelic party scenes from back then whether they just randomly had this loose script and just said go sit in the stairs ad lid something we'll see if we can get anything out of it I'm always curious if and that whatever the vibe of that day was during that time is what would be like subject matter or cool or beat or poetry yeah it's sort of well it kind of feels like we had just come back from commercial break and someone's like and now the thrilling conclusion of baby how and 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 how do we (laughs) how do we get that we kick it off with the psychedelic party but no it's funny because as peaches points out through most of the movie they're shown as antisocial. their home is kind of dilapidated i watched it with my boyfriend and he said in the first half of the movie he's like 
oh, it's kind of like their weirdo Grey Gardens ladies. And I'm like, but wait, because then it's like <laughs> Studio 54 later for some reason. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, they they totally end up becoming Z-Man, uh, you know, and Beyond the Valley of the Dolls and throwing, you know, this know. wild yes. this yes. wild happening with these friends. Like, at least Z-Man lives in, you know, Hollywood. Like, where are these people coming from? Because th- these women live in the suburbs, you know. Right. I know, I know, I know. Well, that's what, but again, that's one of the reasons we love it because just when you think you've seen it all, the baby, the baby has released three distinct acts, you know, and it, you, you, you think you're in one movie and then it shifts gears and then it does it again. And then you shoot to the end scene alone, you know, just like in the house where it just becomes a complete all out horror slasher movie. With like meat cleavers and stabbing and things. Yeah. Meat cleavers, swimming pools, you know, that that's kind of gruesome when oh, you totally. think about and it. And axe throwing, proper axe throwing. And, and of course, you know, and, and Ruth's got that great plaid tweed uh, get up with the tights yeah. and the yes. pills on. Yeah, it's just fabulous. So, Alan Roe Kelly, yes. I, can we uh, say it right here on the Midnight Mass podcast that uh, you are going to play the Ruth Roman character, and the three of us are going to commit at some point to collaborating on a baby-style project. It doesn't have to be a remake. I okay, accept. Great. I accept. Great. Totally. Okay. Yes. You heard yes. it here first. Completely. I'm <laughs> all there. I love it. So, Alan, I have to ask, one of the things we discuss about the trajectory of cult films, uh, unlike other films that we watch and, you know, enjoy in the moment and, and leave behind, cult films stay with us. So this is a movie that you you have enjoyed for years now. Um, how has your relationship with the baby changed, if at all? Or is it just you like it because of how salacious it is? It's all the It's always been the same. I just watch it and go, <laughs> why? <laughs> just... Why? And I can't, I, I get the same, I keep thinking every time I'm going to watch it, I'm going to get more of it. Yeah. But it, uh, you know, it's sort of like the movie that almost gives it all to you, but there's a restraint there that you're just waiting to see that maybe you'll have a breakthrough with it. It's a strange thing. It's a guilty pleasure, you know? A lot of people would look at it and say, this is not a good movie. Of course, we're going to look at it and go, this is a great <laughs> movie. I don't know what it is about it. It's very hard to no, explain. No, I get it, Alan. It's not only a great movie, but it's a fun movie to show to people who are virgins, right? Like, it's a lot of yes. fun to go on that ride. And I never mind exactly. watching it again either. I'll, I'll sit through Me I'll sit too. Through it again. It, it's just, it's... <laughs> it's... That's why it's bad. It's yeah. just sort of like, oh, no, don't tell me you know every line. Yeah, again. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it, it's just really lovely. We don't want to wrap up this interview without asking you about what you are doing right now because we love the movies you've made. We love the career you've carved out for yourself. So so what is going on in the world of Alan Roe Kelly these days? Oh, thanks. Thank you, guys. Um, well, I just wrapped on a film called Site 13 that I collaborated with um, Nathan Faudry on. You should meet Nathan and have him on, Michael. You'll love him. He's great. And it's sort of, um, I came in as a producer afterwards and the editor, so that's been out in the circuit right now. It's going to the New York City Horror Film Festival. It's going to Shock Fest. And I'm now starring in a movie in upstate New York called A Roadhouse Coup, where I'm playing um, Eva Coup, the mallet murderess of Otsego County. It's a true story. It takes place in the 1930s. There's a lot of like, you know, gin rumming, whorehouses, mallet murders, insurance policies. I go to the oh, electric chair. Lovely. Oh my God. <laughs> 
But I do have a great, I have a great wardrobe. That that I have to say, wardrobe's really good, and I do get to really go a little a little mad. So you, you you're doing a f- yeah. uh, proper '30s period piece, and and you're and they're putting yeah. you in the '30s yeah. wardrobe, and then do, are are you also getting hair done and in, in the whole shebang? Like, I'm doing my doing I'm doing my own hair. Wow, awesome. Yeah, I'm doing it myself. It's just kind of much easier, and I've been like yourself. Yeah. I've been doing hair and makeup for so yeah. many years. It's kind of it's just easier if I just come yeah. to set ready. And then I can just kind of go right into it. But it's been a lot. It's been an awful lot of fun. And I'm leaving again this weekend to shoot for another week. Oh, that's so great. Well, we'll see what happens, you know. The way that you've brought horror and continue to build a community of horror in the New York and really just the whole uh, Northeast has just been. Oh, you're very It's true, though. It's so admirable. And I just love it so much. And, you know, I. Well, I just love it, period. That's the only reason I'm doing it. That's why you guys do it, too. We just yeah. love it, you know? If people like it, that's yeah. great. You know, you're really lucky. But, I mean, and I, I've been just, like, such fans of your work, guys. It's just the beautiful work you put out. And I'm following you all the time. So I always know what you're up to, and I'm listening to you all oh, the time. feelings mutual. Much love, seriously. Thank you so much for taking time yes. out of your busy schedule, especially in the midst of this fabulous sounding shoot. I cannot wait to see that movie to talk to us about this deranged slice of cinema from yesteryear. <sighs> Who doesn't have time for that? <laughs> Anytime. Thank you, Alan. All right. Take care, Alan. Thanks, boys. Mwah. And that was our conversation with the amazing filmmaker, actor, writer, producer, editor, and so much more, Alan Kelly. I knew that Alan was going to have a lot to say about this movie because uh, ever since we first met, he has been talking about his great love of Ruth Roman and the baby. Um, but I really, really feel like Alan showed up. That was a very raucous and wild conversation. Uh, you can tell that this is a movie that Alan has really taken to heart. I love that, you know, Alan really just kind of idolizes the vamping of it all and the camp of it all and, and, and recognizes that part of what makes this movie so delicious how off kilter it is. If you have not yet experienced an Alan Rowe Kelly film, and you you should, and you should seek it out if you haven't, um, what I really love is sort of knowing Alan Rowe Kelly's work. What's the movie where Alan Rowe Kelly plays like sort of the the baby? Like she she's kind of like a, a child in, in one of her movies. That's the bloodshed. And the character in question is, the is called Beef Tina. Okay, Beef Tina. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes, Beef Tina. Okay, so Alan Rowe Kelly, he made a movie. If you know the bloodshed or you know Beef Tina, then I think it's even more kind of wonderful to to realize, of course, Alan Roe Kelly loves this movie and loves the baby. Because Beef Tina's got a little bit of the baby in her. For sure. And uh, for audience members who are kind of curious what this Beef Tina is, Beef Tina is the grown-up, question mark, daughter of this sort of like bizarre backwoods clan played by Alan himself. And Beef Tina is a a pituitary case, I guess, large daughter of the family who kind of has this like little orphan Annie Afro wig and like, you know, gingham gown. And Alan, if I recall correctly, intentionally gained something like 30 to 40 pounds to play the role. Uh, It's it's and it's just quite a. Oh, me too. Me too. That's what I do. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, it's just it's such it's such a bizarre presentation of character and a commitment to the otherness of the character. I I, I don't know what your your deal is, Peaches, <laughs> but uh... oh, I'm just I'm committed to my art. So if duty calls, I will put on the pounds. You know, um, I don't even have a follow-up. waffles. I think that don't you... even try it. Whatever you were thinking of saying, just shut it. Just shut up and just let it go. All right, moving right along. <laughs> Uh, No, Alan Roe Kelly is like one of my favorite people in the world. And I'm so glad that not only did we maybe get to introduce the movie The Baby to some of you on this podcast, we may also have been able to introduce you to the world and work of this fantastic indie horror filmmaker, Alan Roe Kelly, who is just a great friend of the podcast and a great filmmaker. And we hope that you will check out their work. This is very much a keep it in the family type show, Michael, because, you know, Alan Roe Kelly is a dear friend of yours and um, someone that we both admire. And our next guest is a dear friend of mine and someone that we both admire, which I think it's, it makes the episode feel very, like, cozy. I agree. Well, you know, we mentioned it at the beginning of the episode, but it is Thanksgiving week. So I guess in a way, this is our Midnight Mass Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, and we're here with family members and I know that you are having actual Thanksgiving with our next guest. That's right. But I was speaking more in the metaphorical sense. You know, Alan and I have made movies together. You live in the same building as our next guest and are having actual Thanksgiving with them. So it's kind of a family affair. Although I I loathe to use the term family affair in an episode about the baby. Well, I mean, we are, I mean, they're a sick and twisted, fucked up family and and so are we. And, and you know, this, this next guest is very kind of hard to describe as a drag performer because of how much they fall outside of what we traditionally say are drag performer qualities or styles. Like, she is a real visual artist, and drag is definitely her medium, but her drag is so wild and so out there and so different, and... She's such a unique artist and such a lovely, lovely individual and such a community builder that I could kind of, we could talk about her and her work actually for an entire episode. So we don't have time for that, obviously, but we will refer you towards the end of our interview towards some documentaries about her um, that we really strongly encourage you to check out, much like we encourage you to check out the work of Ellen Rokelli. Yeah, she's my neighbor, she's my friend, she's our next guest, and she made a trailer parody of the baby trailer. And and that's why we had to have her on and wanted to talk to her about this movie. So without further ado, it's the fantastic Mrs. Vera. Everybody, it is my total pleasure and honor to introduce our next guest, who is someone I uh, look up to greatly and admire and have known for many, many years. She is a really unique uh, drag performer in San Francisco because she's created actually her own cult called Verisphere uh, that's surrounded by her. And it's really about dressing up and having fun and working her incredible uh, wild, outrageous, hard to describe recycled costuming, you know, spectacles. Uh, really, you have to look her up if you're not familiar. Um, and without further ado, I'd like to introduce 
my neighbor who's sitting across the hall from me right now in the same building that I'm sitting in. It's Mrs. Vera. Hi, everybody. Gosh, thanks. So great to be here. Well, so, so great to have you. I, of course, wanted to reach out to you when I knew we were going to be tackling the baby uh, because I think you're the only drag queen that I'm aware of. I'm, I'm not sure. There's probably others. Um, Because as soon as you say you're the only one, you know, someone's going to come out and say, I did that in 1988. Um, But but you're the only one that I'm aware of who's actually done a parody of the baby. And I just want to just start there because you made this wonderful trailer, this video. Uh, You and uh, another friend of the podcast, Michael Wirtz, and some other people, uh, other local artists. So tell us about that. You know, I'm assuming you saw the movie. And we're, we're inspired to make this trailer. Yeah. You know, actually, um, the group of our little oddball creative types um, came across the trailer first. And actually, before we even watched the movie together, we decided we just wanted to remake the trailer because it was wow. just, um, you know, such a goofy thing. And, you know, it's like, it's so weird. And our whole group loves finding, like, you know, odd spaces to inhabit. And I think this movie is like a a great example of something that's kind of really hard to nail down. Um, And at the same time, it's hilarious. I mean, the premise is so camp. And um, so we just decided that it would be really fun to sort of recreate it sort of shot by shot and then add a few little extras in there. And we just, uh, it was just a great collaborative project. None of us are filmmakers. None of us, you know, we're all a visual artist of some kind, but um, we're not actors, we're not filmmakers. But um, we had a blast doing this. It's, it's very, you know, the feeling to me is is very our group. So Well, despite claiming that you're not actors or filmmakers, I have to tell you, this trailer is so spot on. I mean, I watched the trailer that you made, and I watched the trailer for the movie, and I'm like, they nailed it. They got it 100%. <laughs> And one of the things when uh, we talk about drag parody or what draws drag artists to specific characters uh, is is this kind of camp sensibility, but it goes beyond that when it comes to cult film. There are some movies that have a drag sensibility. Yeah. And The Baby, obviously, you were inspired to you know jump into drag and create this. So what do you think it is about this material specifically that that spoke to you or would call to the heart of a, a drag performer? The thing about the baby that's so fascinating to me is that premise is like so ridiculously campy, but the production is really earnest. And uh, it's sort of like, it's almost overproduced for what it could have been. So it it takes itself kind of like socially relevantly seriously, but that's, you know, keeping a grown man in a crib as a baby is never going to be one of society's relevant problems but so i love that they they (laughs) sort of bring their like you know this kind of serious approach to something that should you know obviously be super schlocky you know we love really silly stupid things our whole group is is very very much in touch with its funny bone and what kids think is hilarious yeah because they were so serious it was really fun to make fun of them in the trailer you know, acting wise. I mean, poor, you know, I hope Ruth Roman's ghost doesn't throw me down a staircase or anything, but, um, you know, (laughs) I mean, I look at my performance and it's, I'm kind of like, I always am when I see myself on film, I'm like, oh my God, that's just horrible. Um, but it's actually, it worked. So it's, it's fun. Oh, it's so wonderful. And I have to say as, as, as someone who's really familiar with your work, 
because you're not a filmmaker and not an actor as Mrs. Vera, your work as Mrs. Vera is very visual. Like you're you're living artwork. You know, you're for for people who don't know, I mean, Mrs. Vera is a costume designer and the the costumes are, are are elaborate and over the top and use use materials that you would never imagine could be incorporated <laughs> into costumes and and when you see Mrs Vera and her troupe the Vera Sphere they look like aliens who've landed from a planet you know that's part of the legacy of the Coquettes and Vegas in space and you know just very very San Franciscan and very wild and what <laughs> I love about the baby is we never have seen Mrs Vera sort of this dulled down in a way <laughs> and and kind of mean yeah. and you know sort of nasty so it really it really was wonderful because you're quite good in it and I'm kind of like wait a second maybe you are an actor maybe you should do this more often usually because of the style of of uh, my costumes and what we do um we're sort of hidden in full view it's like you can't really necessarily see me there so um there was something about uh these characters that are goofy group just felt like it would be really fun to try and pretend to be normal because they're all trying to be like super kind of convincing in the roles. And we're, we kind of take a very opposite tack, um, but, you know, just following their, their blueprints for it. That was just very, you know, resonated well for us and just the way we like to kind of put things on their side a little. Well, I, I would like to ask, so you said that you saw the trailer first and were motivated to create your version of the trailer what happened when you finally saw the movie? You know, because that's a whole different, yeah. you know, bag of worms, honestly. Well, we, you know, um, we were just looking for a short project, but we're like, well, yeah, we have to see the film, of course. You know, I mean, the trailer alone makes you want to see, like, if this film can possibly be a real, you know, thing. Where's it coming from? Where's it trying to go? Um, right. uh, and when we watched it, you know, I really loved it. It was kind of like... Believe it or not, I'm not the hugest horror fan. I don't have a very good gore threshold. I don't. It's not really my genre. We're very much like a, a you know sunshiny, you figure it out kind of place. But I thought it was a great horror film for me. It was you know like I like Baby Jane, and it was you know it had like a lot of psychological components to it. And I just kind of loved all the social realism in it. Like they're trying to be like like relevant, and um, it's funny because the premise is just too campy for that to ever. You know, you can never really forget the silliness of the the what's driving the the plot, but there's still fascinating performances, and um, I love the fashion in it. And there's, you know, I think that the people look amazing in it. It's almost like Showgirls that way. It's kind of overproduced in terms of what it needed to be. It could have just been like a, you know, Gothic Hammer late '60s '70s Hollywood actress vehicle, you know, for some kind of loopy story. It sort of feels more like an episode of Police Woman with Angie Dickinson or something. It's, 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 it's almost <laughs> prosaic in how the plot un, unfolds uh, over time. Yeah, we actually talked a little bit about that with Alan Roe Kelly, and I love that you bring it up as well. Where for what the script is and and the style, even the marketing of the film, uh, it is very well produced. It is very earnest, and yeah. it actually is hard to describe or sum up because. And I think it was Alan who pointed out that, like, or, or maybe the three of us, I don't remember, Michael, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we all decided that it was kind of a bunch of different movies. Like, it starts and it basically is is in the guise of being this sort of earnest after-school special. 
style, <laughs> you know, that kind of then delves into some serious melodrama and, you know, really like uh, heavy acting. And then, you know, by the third act, it's kind of like this psychedelic fucking horror movie, you know, like just yeah. an over the top, you know, suspenseful, you know, horror movie. And it, the the three movies are kind of mashed up under this one disparate, you know, vision. It's almost wants to be an action film in some ways. It's yeah. like an all an all woman weird, like what would a woman action film in the seventies be imagined as? And, you know, you just you never really know where they're trying to go. Um, but they have like a really consistent tone throughout it. So it's it's a really fun movie to watch. And I think they have one of the uh, great party scenes from the seventies. That that long thing that's that's, you know, kind of authentic in a way. I thought they just put a lot of time and effort into capturing the the moment in a way. It's just usually not the priority of a, of a you know, film that's, um, you know, so gothic. What I love about the party scene, too, is, as Peaches points out, it, it almost comes out of left field because we follow this sort of character melodrama where it's very much established that these women do everything in their power to kind of keep to themselves yeah. and keep people out of the house. But the second Ruth Roman gets her glitter caftan out, everybody in the neighborhood's invited. Yeah. And it's just this crazy sort of post, uh, you know, uh, easy rider, psychedelic, uh, Roger Corman, juvenile delinquent, you know, strobing camera and lights thing. And I just feel like it, it's so in line with this movie's wacky messaging because everything about this movie seems like it strives to be subversive. Yeah. And maybe that's part of the draw. I don't know. I, I think that even that party just feels like counter to everything that has been established so far. So, of course, they're like, and now this. Yeah. You don't really know who to root for for the entire film. It's actually kind of clever how you don't really know which of these crazy ladies is the craziest lady yeah. and it's all done with such a great emphasis on normalcy she's got this boring job and she has no power there and she's just a social worker and it's all this kind of like very much like 70s you know television realism stuff but then it's just ridiculous at the same time yeah and in the end we're led to believe that like all of the women are crazy in this movie yeah. the baby is like maybe the only sort of you know, innocent uh, character in the film. I don't know. They're so cagey with the motives for everyone that by the end of the film, it just doesn't really matter um, so much. Right. Or, or there's something about it that's that's kind of charming and that it just, you know, plays out to its Greek tragedy. And, and it does sort of pay off because you, you want it to be like this kind of really extreme nutty resolution. And, and it is. It truly is. And I love that you compare it to a Greek tragedy because I was thinking as you were describing how this movie centers around all of these powerful and dynamic women. And I was thinking to myself, I'm like, yeah, I guess it's kind of like a very strong female cast question mark because also it doesn't really pass the Bechtel test, does it? Because the entire movie, even though there's no real strong male character or male characters at all other than baby, the entire conversation is all these women talking about the baby yeah. and, how, and how their whole kind of circumstance centers around that. But also in this sort of savage revenge against men way, especially yeah. as, as filtered through uh, Ruth Roman's character that maybe is part of the camp draw. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's face it. Ruth Roman is just pure pure, delicious camp. Like, without Ruth Roman... I mean, yes, the concept of the film is uh, so great and so twisted, and, you know, we... 
are attracted to it. And, and he is incredible. The performance that the baby gives, I forget the actor's name, but he actually is is disturbingly good, right? Like he's very effective. And then you counter that with Ruth Roman, who is just chewing up the scenery. It, it, it sounds like she's smoked three packs of Virginia Slims before every take. She's just guzzling booze, you know. I'd just love to have been on the set. And, you know, I have to say, Vera, if the 70s were authentically like, that was the 70s, and I was born in the 70s, but I don't remember the 70s, but, like, that party is so fucking cool. And when I yeah. see, like, like movies where people are casually dressed in the most amazing sparkling caftans and bell bottoms and stuff, I'm like, the 70s, while hideous in many ways also there's something very fabulous about it all yeah. <laughs> i mean the hair hideous people at the party like like total you know greasy sweaty comb over yeah. polyester suit guys um but also like the fashion it's almost 80s on like the daughters you know uh-huh. it's, it's kind of like or is it trying to be retro 60s it's it, it's very interesting that you know the choices they made to let these people dress up for these party scenes and um i don't know how much was left to the actors but um i do agree like i think ruth roman's presence in a way sort of set a tone for all the actors to follow perhaps that that um it sort of elevated it from from how you could choose to be delivering those lines but you know she you know and i don't really i'm not really familiar with her other movies you know and i haven't really seen her you know what she's known for um so there's something, you know, when you're not familiar with someone, it's it's kind of great to to sort of, um, you know, just trust your responses to it and, and go with it. And this thing was so obscure, none of us really had a relationship to the movie before, you know, we saw the, the trailer. And then, you know, about a month later, we made the thing. We just sort of like talked about it, hashed it out and, and just did it. It was great. Now, what was the response to the trailer when when you released it? Were people like hip to it? Did they know like, oh, I know this movie? Or because it's just so weird and draggy anyway, were people just like amused by, because of that? I think a lot of people saw the movie just because we were saying it was really really fun. I don't I don't know how many people saw the the baby the trailer um, that that we did or or if that had you know the reach of that is probably pretty contained within people that that know us because um, it's so weird. I don't even know like what we would do with it if we, you know, wanted something further. I guess I'm still stuck on Ruth Roman and Michael, you are the resident film nerd on the podcast. So I was kind of waiting for you to jump in and give us Ruth Roman's filmography or tell us, you know, what she's best known for. The thing about Ruth Roman is exactly what Vera said. Like, you know, watching the movie that she is in many ways, this elder statesman of of Hollywood, because she carries that weight, even if you don't know her. But unlike a Betty Davis or an Olivia de Havilland, she doesn't necessarily have the tentpole movies behind her. Um, and it's just sort of, I think, the luck of the draw. I think she was part of a studio system when they were all kind of contracted where you can see her pop up in a lot of stuff. But she doesn't have quite that legacy that those other women have that we can have that instant recall like, oh, Betty Davis, now Voyager or Mildred Pierce or, you know, Lady in a Cage, whatever. I, I think that what's interesting about Ruth Roman is her gravitas merely comes from her her presence. I mean, we could, we could dig into the Turner Classic Movies archives and I could name some movies, but really for a generation of queer people who also love cult films, this is the movie they know her for. And I think that that's kind of 
it fascinating in of itself. In fact, it actually makes her performance even that much more impressive. The fact that we we watch a movie like The Baby and are immediately attracted to this quality that she has that we identify with other women who are enormous Hollywood stars who brought that sort of energy or presence or resonance or pathology to a performance, she brings all of that to this movie and elevates it to this whole other level of both camp, and I mean camp in a good way. I don't mean, I mean quality, you know, it making the movie uh, memorable and also giving us this sense of like, this isn't her first time at the rodeo. Like this is someone who knows exactly what she's doing. She's, you know, chewing up the scenery. I mean, like, like Vera said, like the way she delivers her lines, her presence is just so rich. And um, for me, she sort of embodies the MGM studio style of acting. She's like this whole package um, and it doesn't really matter what movie you put her in. You don't even, like you say, you don't even really know her movies. Um, and she's late in that period. You know, that was like, mm. that was over. They got rid of Joan Crawford. They, they weren't really doing that anymore. But she, um, and she's like a little younger than those like really famous Hollywood actresses when when this, the system was producing films for them that could really become cult items. And um, she has that kind of legacy feel to her performances. Like you were saying, Peaches, they're just, um, it's riveting. She really holds your attention. It's true. And before, you know, some internet person comes for me to be like, oh, but she did have significant roles. The truth is she she had been acting for, for quite some time. She goes as far back as serials. She was in uh, several serials for studios before she became under contract for Warner Brothers. And she most notably, uh, for a certain generation, worked with Hitchcock and Strange on a train but right okay. again it's like one of those things where yeah but none of she none ju- of that matters like you said michael none right. of that really matters it's the fact that she grabs us she has that quality there are those those people like you listed a betty davis a joan crawford a liz taylor olivia de Havilland. like like we know who they are they're, they're these huge stars and they connect to queer people in a very particular way But then there's this other group of people who don't come from that world. They don't have that marquee size behind them, the gravitas of a big Hollywood star, but like a Susan Terrell or a Karen Black or a Ruth Roman, you know, or even a Mink Stoll, where we as queer people go, oh, I love her. I love what she's doing. And and there's an interesting thing. It'd be interesting to see, like, and it happens on TV shows, too, where, like, uh, what's her face? Pam from True Blood. Or, you know, like, there's just these women that show up on screen that, like, have a power and a control and a presence that just speaks very specifically to us, you know. Yeah. And, you know, I think she does that in The Baby. She's kind of riveting the way, like, Divine is. You just, yeah. you, you just want to see what, what she says next and it's very you know it very much feels like a drag it could be a drag queen because we're not really familiar with her character but she's just so assertive and fully embodying this impossibly silly script you know but she she really um she just fully inhabits the character and i think people do respond to that well i think it goes back to a conversation that has been sort of ongoing here at midnight mass it's this idea of of the prestige film versus the the film that actually imprints you know we have best picture winners that of course we celebrate or know are part of film history but then there are the movies that stick with us that maybe weren't the box office hits or or the critical hits, but the ones that we're still talking about. And I'm thinking like even in a modern day scope is, as we're discussing Ruth Roman coming from prestige pictures, but this being the thing that strikes into the hearts of queer people, 
a modern day example to me would be someone like Kathleen Turner. Of course, uh, we know yeah, Body Heat, yeah. but I think that for a whole generation, she's serial mom. You know, and that's that's the legacy in a way. Yeah, and they both they both have that voice. In fact, Ru- Ruth Roman might be the first actor to give Kathleen Turner a run for her money, as far as the. That that voice goes okay. So I w- I was just like I wanted to make it perfect, and I know I I, I got Alan Ro Kelly because Alan Ro Kelly does a pretty good, um, uh, Ruth Roman impersonation or Mrs. Wadsworth. I love that her name is Wadsworth. I mean, even that <laughs> has gay innuendo written all over it. Um, but the line is, and I looked it up. Nothing happened with your damn tit in his mouth, and you call that nothing. Lying bitch. Okay, I, I'm sorry, but when you have a script that has that written in it, and that scene where she walks in and she sees the baby being breastfed by the babysitter, oh my god. Like, I'm yeah. sorry, legendary. And for those of you who haven't seen the film, uh, yes, that was a spoiler, but hopefully it's enough to entice you to go out and see the baby. I got to show this film. I think, I, did I mention this already, Michael, that I showed it to Alaska Thunderfuck? And it was like a, oh. a random movie night in, in Alaska. Had never seen it before, and and by the end, I, I swear, I feel like I had changed Alaska's religion. You know, she was just <laughs> so into the movie. So it, it really just it delivers. You know. Speaking of cult and uh, cultivating a cult, Peaches mentioned this at the top of the interview, and I think that we would be remiss if we did not mention uh, Mrs. Vera. You know, your work is so impactful to San Francisco and drag, and for people out there who want to discover more about you. You have not one but two documentaries all about your amazing work out in the world. Uh, Vera Sphere, A Love Story in Costume, yep, right? Yep. And Mrs. Mrs. Vera's, Vera's Daybook. Daybook. Where can people see those films? Mrs. Vera's Daybook was part of Truly California. So you could see it on PBS. Um, I'm not sure how much longer it's there, but the director is working on another um, streaming deal so to have it appear somewhere else. And he's doing actually like a feature-length you know, extended version of this as well that will probably be at, at Frameline or the, you know, some kind of festivals this year. It's, um, he's just finishing up editing the final thing. And um, I haven't seen, seen any of what he's added yet. So that's exciting. Um, but yeah, it's always a little hard to sample us because, you know, we don't really have anything that we're promoting. We just sort of do it, and it's it's sort of an experience that just sort of happens to you when you encounter our, our group. But the documentaries are a, a wonderful way to get a, a taste of that. And they might be on YouTube. Well, I have to tell you, when Mrs. Vera's Daybook came out on PBS, I watched it. And um, it, when you have a podcast, you're also a frequent guest on other people's podcasts. And, and I want you to know, I was raving about it. I, every time I was on a show, people are like, what are you watching? I'm like, you need to go watch no. this. Because to me, uh, it is... Such a significant um, document on this amazing work that you do for the community in San Francisco and for the queer community. And I cannot stress to Midnight Mass listeners enough, Mrs. Vera has an amazing legacy and a cult all her own that has made so many people feel included. You need to see this documentary. Uh, I'm singing it from the rooftops. (laughs) It's an honor to have you here for me personally and uh, for just knowing all the work that you do. So thank you. Thank you for coming and talking to us about this wholesome movie, The Baby. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks so much for that. And um, it's been a, a pleasure to talk about it. The movie's hilarious and, you know, yeah. and serious at the same time. It's good. It, it, it's not usually both. It's yeah. really, really fun. And I, selfishly, I, I, I have to let the listeners know that 
I feel so spoiled to get to live in the same building as Mrs. Vera <laughs> and her fantastic partner and creative collaborator, Michael Johnstone. So we've, we're having Mrs. Vera on now, but if you go in, and seek out those documentaries, you'll see that Mrs. Vera and Michael work collaboratively together, you know, a lot. And um, so we will, we will have to have Michael on for a uh, future episode because uh, Michael and Mrs. Vera come over to our apartment and we watch you know, movies like The Baby together. And, you know, we have a lot of fun. And um, it's just been such a pleasure having you on the podcast. And uh, we hope everyone will go and check out not only the the movies about you, but, of course, your trailer parody to The Baby, which we'll include in our social media. We'll share the links to that Great. as well so people can find it. Thank you, Mrs. Vera. Thank you so much. You know, we have a charmed life and we like to share it with people. So that's where we start and that's where we end up. And I think that the baby, the trailer was a perfect example of us doing that. <laughs> Fabulous. That was the fantastic Mrs. Vera talking all about the baby and why we are so fascinated by the baby. And at this point in the podcast, while Michael and I are pretty clear with each other that he is not necessarily someone who likes the baby, the movie, and I do like the baby, the movie, but we're both in agreement that it is a fascinating film that should be watched. We're hoping that we've convinced you to sit the family down this Thanksgiving, this important American holiday. And for all of you listeners in other countries, please, please act like Americans and gorge yourselves with food and try to remember the reason for the season, which is colonizing and being awful and fucked up and horrible. I, I don't want to go down that road. But the best way to celebrate really is to watch the baby. Wouldn't you agree, Michael? I absolutely agree. And, you know, I said it in the intro as well. It, it's strange because it's a movie that I don't know that I'd prescribe uh, the term like to, but I definitely appreciate. And in the annals of cult history, it certainly has earned its place. And as an appreciator of subversive cinema, I, I do like it for that. And I think it's one of those movies that I take wicked delight in introducing to people. It's like one of those where... You think, even based on the bizarre premise, a outlier family is keeping an adult baby in their home and the, the social worker who gets mixed up in their strange LSD-fueled party bad wig scenario, that you're like, oh, I have a pretty good idea of what shenanigans I'm about to check in for. And maybe you do for the first 10 minutes, and then I assure you from there, you are on a roller coaster ride and honestly, what more could you ask from a midnight movie? Yeah. You know? The thing that you you get that you didn't even ask for is fucking Ruth Roman. So, you know, you've got this great, weird movie that is just so weird. And to me, it's, it's in line with some other weird movies that I hope we get to tackle on the podcast eventually, like Chatterbox, you know. These, fil these yeah. films that have these just super bizarre conceits, you know, and you go, wow, what was the pitch meeting like for that? And how did they get the budget for it? You know, Chatterbox is, of course, a film about um, a woman who wakes up with a talking vagina. Um, and the baby is, you know, it, to me, a, a similar kind of movie. But what you don't get in Chatterbox that you do in the baby is Ruth 
Roman. And I think because of Ruth Roman, you've now find that you've got, you know, Peaches, Alan Roe Kelly, and Mrs. Vera as earnest, you know, really earnest fans who really like the movie because she elevates the whole thing to a different level. No, absolutely. And I think that that's at the core of what the Midnight Mass discussion series has been about. I'm sure it has not escaped the attention of listeners that we'll talk about kind of broader cult hits. I mean, every cult movie is a niche, of course, but there are the bigger titles like Death Becomes Her or, you know, the work of John Carpenter. And then there are the niche of the niche where once you've sort of entered into the world of the weird and maybe normal weird, for lack of a better term, just isn't tickling you as much as it used to and you need to go a little rougher. You gotta get into your your more transgressive cinema. Uh, we delight in introducing those to audiences too, because I think that they feed us in a different way. For you know, for every Vegas in space, Chatterbox, The Baby, Thundercrack, you know, yeah. these movies that are just so bizarre, they're kind of like the fix that we cult fans need. Yeah, you know? they are uh, really fun because not everybody yet knows. And so you get to kind of enjoy expose. Like I love exposing people to the baby. I love it. You know, it's like, um, hey, hey, have you seen this movie? I got a movie to show you. You know, and um, you know, just be like a creepy pervert uh, and and force people into watching your weird trashy cinema. Which, as you said, my poor mother. This has been the story of my life. You know, I've always, always brought home fucked up movies to show my family. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I watched the Doom Generation with my mom. So, oh wow, that you know that's really uncomfortable to watch. That's a whole fucking racist orgy at the end. Like what? I never said it was a smart choice. <laughs> I'm just saying that my mom watched it. Uh, but no, it is. I, I, I do appreciate that. Uh, just the the grit and and the the strangeness. And just as I said, like, do I like it or do I just appreciate it? Invariably, we'll get to movies that I know that will have the reverse opinion because. I like a lot of really fucked up shit myself. So it just, I think it, it matters what tickles your fancy that week. <laughs> Absolutely. And speaking of tickling your fancy, I wanted to let the listeners know about our exciting news, Michael. We have Thanksgiving happening. We keep talking about it because we know when this episode is coming out. We also know that people are going to be listening to this podcast for years to come. So just just so people understand, this is Thanksgiving in the year 2021 that we're talking about. And after Thanksgiving, Michael and I are planning in December our first ever Midnight Mass, the podcast uh, screening. We're going to do a Midnight Mass podcast presents. And we are going to do Phantom of the Paradise at the Roxy Cinema on December 15th. And Michael, you'll be coming up from L.A. to to host it with me. Yes, I will be there. I'm very excited to screen this movie. Obviously, it takes it right back to the beginning of the Midnight Mass podcast. Phantom of the Paradise was our second episode. And in the spirit of the celebration that we imbued in that discussion, we're bringing it to a live audience. And we're not only, you know, being joined by each other but we're being joined by Ari Khan the mayor of the Phantom of the Paradise fandom the principal archivist of the Swan Archives and uh, he may or may not have a special treat for us during that screening yeah that's right well just say this dear listeners if you've followed us and you've been listening we plan to deliver exactly what we promised so many episodes back right so 
If you know what we're talking about, then you know that we're going to present to you the Phantom of the Paradise as you've never seen it before. And that's all we can really say, right? I mean, we have to kind of talk in this sort of code. Yeah, absolutely. So I will say this, beyond whatever that means, you can also expect an evening of hilarity and drag and performances and just a rockin' good time because you're going to check into the Roxy in San Francisco, but you're really coming to Paris. Ah, I love it. And um, <laughs> in the spirit of um, Midnight Mass of ye old days, uh, we want you to dress up. We're going to have a really lowbrow, shitty lip sync karaoke kind of challenge. Um, so so wear your best phantom costumes and, and, and jump up on stage for the contest. And we're also going to be graced with the talents of the fantastic local luminary chanteuse Trixie Carr, uh, who has agreed to come and perform. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Tickets are $25, and that includes the show and the screening, a tremendous value. And there are only a few, because the Roxy Cinema is not that big. So we do anticipate that this show will sell out. So please join us on December 15th. Go to roxy.com for more information, R-O-X-I-E, and we strongly encourage you to pick up a ticket while they're still available. I can't wait. And what I also can't wait, listeners, is to hear in the wake of the Thanksgiving holiday all the horrified screams and cries from your relatives who you forced to watch the baby because Frankly, that's the kind of holiday baptism that they deserve. So please, if you show show this uh, delicious film to uh, your grandma, your aunt, your uncle, your second cousin twice removed, or maybe that new infant in your family to get them ready for what's to come, let us know. We want to hear how it went. And if you too are someone who's been doing your best to babysit a family member and just happen to accidentally drop your tit into its mouth... Then you too are a child of the popcorn now. <laughs> <laughs> Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production. <laughs>